So welcome. Uh, we are in part two of our series on spiritual disciplines. Uh, so glad that you could be here this evening. Last week, we gave uh, kind of an introduction to the disciplines, and then we talked about the discipline of meditation. Uh, the, the pace from this point forward will be we'll cover two of the spiritual disciplines uh, from each night from here on, uh, here on out. So what that means from the outset that ought to kind of give you a little bit of a signal is that uh, as we talk about each of these disciplines, I will not in any way, uh, nor will Wayne, uh, try to give you every single bit of information you possibly could ever know about that specific discipline. It's just not possible. Plus, it would probably kind of weigh us all down and we probably wouldn't get a whole lot out of it. Instead, we're going to kind of talk about some major points that hopefully will be then a point of diving off for you as you go to try to implement this discipline in your relationship with God. That's my general preamble to any of these evenings that we come together to talk about these disciplines. Now let me talk specifically about this evening's two disciplines. I feel especially unqualified to talk to you about both of them. Can I just put that out there on the table? Um, in my personal relationship with God, uh, I have always felt like tonight as we cover the two disciplines, you can look at your hand out there, you'll notice that we're covering prayer and fasting. Um, in my personal relationship with God, I have always felt kind of like a prayer rookie, and I've looked, I have often looked to other people in my life, and it seems like a lot of the times I'm around people like Wayne or I'm around Doug uh, who just seem to be like magic prayer warriors and anything that they say to God, God bends over backwards to accomplish for them. Um, I, on the other hand, have been just a, a prayer mortal. And, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about it because it's a crucial discipline. Um, fasting, uh, I, I'm even more of a rookie at because I grew up in a, in a Baptist tradition that does not believe in fasting in any way, shape, or form. If you're familiar with Baptists, you cannot, cannot worship God without a full belly if you are a Baptist. So, you, you, so fasting is not necessarily a discipline that is well embraced. Um, but that being said, uh, I have, can I just say that I have learned a ton on both of these subjects, and primarily, my teacher has been the guy that I mentioned to you last week, Richard Foster, whose book we're kind of using um, as a major source material for the spiritual disciplines. Um, so let me again push his book, The Celebration of Discipline. I think it's a phenomenal diving off point for the spiritual disciplines. And then specifically, as we talk about prayer, pretty much everybody that, whose name you know that writes Christian stuff has a book on prayer. And then there are a myriad of people whose name you'd never recognize who have also written books on prayer. There are all kinds of books on prayer. Some of them are good. Many of them are adequate. Many of them are bad. But I would tell you that Foster does have a, a book on prayer as well, uh, if you're just looking for another resource uh, for that. But that being said, what the kind of the structure of what we're going to do is I'm going to uh, go through a little bit of biblical information on each of these disciplines just so that we are constantly going back to Scripture to enforce why we are studying these things. Talk about a little bit of the hows and the whys and the whats. All of those things I want to try to cover. What is this? How can we implement it? And hopefully give you a little bit of practical tips if, uh, if we can. Okay? So that being said... Uh, on the first part of your handout here, you'll notice that we're going to cover prayer first. 
So the first point in 1A, we're going to talk just briefly about examples of prayer. Examples of prayer. If it helps you to follow along, please feel free to fill in the blanks. If it does not help you to follow along and you find it to be more distracting than anything, then go ahead and just toss that thing out and don't worry too much about it. It's not a big deal. That's just a tool for you if necessary. So, examples of prayer. Uh... Depending upon how you define prayer, there's prayer all throughout Scripture. I think probably the simplest definition of prayer is communication with God. And if you are familiar at all with Scripture, uh, how often do people communicate with God in the scriptural text? Hi. <laughs> Come on in. Stay a while. Fair enough. <laughs> How often do people communicate to God in Scripture? Frequently. Thank you, Douglas. <laughs> Not only is the answer correct, it is grammatically correct with the L-Y on the end. God bless the Brits. <laughs> It is the English language, is it not? <laughs> it happens quite frequently. And so I, I could have picked a, a bunch of examples, but just a, a couple of quick examples just so that we can see that it, they're all throughout the pages of Scripture. We see in Daniel 6.10. We're not going to look up every single one of these passages because we're going to have a lot of passages, and there's some that I want to focus on. Uh, Daniel, uh, in the story of Daniel... Uh, I wrote on there, did you notice, or have you remembered before how often Daniel used to pray, even when it became against the law for him to do so? Daniel publicly prayed three times a day. He specifically set aside three specific times of day. Now, you could look at that really quickly if you have law mind and go, okay, well, I need to, to have three times a day, but let's ask ourselves honestly, is three times a day enough to talk to God? No. No, not really, right? So don't get hung up on specific numbers. Yeah, so those are kind of like public, public specific times in which he did it. And, and that kind of leads us to Jesus in prayer as well, right? Remember we talked about Jesus praying or Jesus' times of meditation. He would go off alone and people would constantly seek him out. And he would, he would get swamped by people. Uh, but Mark 1.35 and Luke 6.12 and even in John 17, we get a whole chapter of Jesus praying. And we get an opportunity to kind of see a little bit about Jesus praying there. So it's, it really comes as no surprise with the people of God having uh, a tradition of prayer and then finding in Jesus the example of that tradition continuing, that Jesus' followers continue that as well. And we see passages like Acts 6-4, where we get point three, there's a blank there. Apostles were devoting themselves to prayer and ministry. Remember when there was a little bit of a... A scuffle, or a scuffle is probably the wrong word. That makes it sound like a fist fight. There was an argument where people were saying, hey, our widows aren't getting taken care of properly like the other widows are. And the apostles rightly said, okay, we're going to try to solve this problem, but instead of getting bogged down in the details, the, the apostles are going to focus on keeping the main things the main things. And the main things that were the main things were devoting themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And they appointed some other people within the church to take care of those widows and to try to administrate that service, okay? So 
based on that information, obviously you could find all kinds of examples of people praying in scripture, but let's talk about um, the guidance on prayer that we receive. This, this is point 1B, guidance on prayer. There's a variety of guidance that you could find from scripture in how we should pray. And what I wanted to do is just kind of structure some of these. I just picked five, but it seemed like probably five of the major ones of the obligations that come to us from scripture of, hey, these are things that should be a part of your prayer life, of your communication with God. Point one, we ought to pray for others. Okay, That's, that should come as no surprise to you, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about why. What's that? Yes, so I, I hesitated. Uh, I originally, in my first outline of this section, was going to talk to you about all the different fancy terms for different kinds of prayer. Um, and I ended up just chucking all of that out because I felt like we would focus a lot on the terms, terms like intercessory prayer. That just means praying for others. There's all kinds of different ways to pray. But instead of complicating it, at the, or for the, for the purpose of making it sound official and very academic. Instead, let's just talk about the basics of what we want to be a part of our prayer life. What, the, what scripture has pointed to us should be a part of our prayer life. Our prayer life should not just be about ourselves. And I think that if you tuned out at this point, you'd probably be okay in your understanding of prayer. Right? So think about the difference between why I'm starting with this as point one. The majority of us, if you're anything like me, spend the majority of our prayer on ourselves. Right? And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Don't hear me to say that that's a wrong thing. Our relationship with God requires communication with God. However, Scripture has encouraged us in multiple places, not the least of which is the reference that I put here, in multiple places to also in our communication with God, communicate about other people, to pray for other people, to pray for their needs. And there are reasons for that that we'll unpack in a little bit, okay? So let's move on to point two. After we get that point that we ought to pray for others, let's look at a couple of other passages that you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, if, you, if you go to 1 Thessalonians 5, where it, we'll start looking up some of these passages. 1 Thessalonians 5. We come across this, verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's the will of God, by the way? Just in case you were wondering, what's God's will for your life? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and, give thanks and giving thanks in everything, right? Okay, you don't have to go home and wonder, what's God's will for my life? It's been made evident <laughs> to you, okay? Now, now, does this mean that you ought to quit your job, uh, sell your children and worry about nothing else other than your prayer life. I guess that's a possibility, but let's look more realistically. That was your measure. At, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brad said I was supposed to, and the Bible said. Brad said the Bible says it. Yeah. 
Maybe, maybe what we need to recognize is that the manner in which we communicate with God is not something that always requires a special time, but instead can be something that we persistently do, can be a, a part of everything that we do. And that's the beauty of the omnipresent God, that we never have to go find him, right? We don't have to drive over to the church building to make sure that he hears our prayers, What's awesome about being a Protestant as, as opposed to a Roman Catholic, and I'm not denigrating the Roman Catholics because there are legitimate believers within there, but we don't have to pray through people to be able to get, to get to God. We don't have to pray through a priest. We don't have to pray through Mary. We don't have to make sure that we've got special water on our face. We don't have to do any of these special conduits. All we have to do is directly turn to the God who is ever-present, Right? And we can do that on a continuous basis, and we ought to. Make sense? Okay, point three. We ought to pray, and this seems with midterm elections coming up, this seems specifically, um, it was an encouragement to me. Let's look at 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. Actually, we'll start in verse 1. First of all, 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 1. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, in order that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. My friends, if your political position is the primary content of your communication with the people around you, you're probably missing the mark because you are directly, directly told, hey, your communication with God about your leaders needs to be a priority for your life. I fall short in this. Join with me in improving this as part of, our, as part of your life. If you want to be effective in your communication on political issues with those around you, start by praying for your leadership especially if they're in a different persuasion of political party, because now we have to pray that they would be brought to the truth. <laughs> there, you know, there's so much, and this is just kind of more of a side comment, uh, there's, there's so much dialogue that's happening that is, is war in nature. It's, it's polemic dialogue in our culture that surrounds politics, right? The, the classic adage that I'm sure many of you grew up with is that you never speak about religion or politics, like if you want to have friends uh, or country music, you can't, can't. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. That's good tips for living right there. The point is, I'm not saying that we can't talk about that, but the point is with everybody else talking so violently about it and creating an us versus them, I wonder how much of that us versus them would be happening if each side was praying for one another in the battle, right? Let's talk a little bit more uh, about our oughts. So we ought to pray for our leaders. That was point three. Point four, on the heels of our leaders, uh, we also ought to pray for another classification of people. Let's look to Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Do I have to go there? I don't know. Jesus did, so I want to go where he goes. <laughs> Matthew 5, 
verse uh, 43. Matthew 5, verse 43, start there. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and what? And pray for those who persecute you. Friends, I'm a fan of self-defense. I am. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a fan of self-defense, and I think that there's a proper application even for the Christian. But what needs to come before that is the reality that our Jesus, our leader, our discipler, our shepherd, our Lord, our King, our God has told us that for those that are causing problems for you in your life, it starts in your response with you praying for that person. And if you actually employ that, I promise you, things are going to change. Things are going to change. I don't know exactly what those things will be, but if it's anything like my experience have been, the first thing that's going to change is you, (laughs) not the other person. Take Jesus' words seriously the next time you get offended by somebody. And pray for those that are persecuting you. Pray for your enemies. We ought to pray for our enemies. That's what point four is. Point five. And Jesse referenced this this morning. We won't look at every single passage here. But this is just a very simple instruction that pops up a bunch of different times in Scripture. And it's interesting for how simple the instruction is, for how difficult it seems for us to employ. But... Both Matthew and then I also quoted some passages or some verses in James here tell us that we ought to ask, right? Jesus says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you will find. James says it in a different way. We talked a little bit about it this morning. Jesse talked about it and we'll talk about it again when we come to uh, James chapter four. But James just specifically says, you you don't have what you want because you're not asking for it that we actually are encouraged to ask. We are encouraged to put our needs before God. I really like within the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus is instructing on a certain type of prayer, part of it, and, and maybe it's, if you're anything like me, you've just memorized the prayer without really like pulling it apart and really thinking about each of the lines, but part of it is give us today our daily bread. Think about that, just that phrase as it is an instruction. Jesus is instructing his followers to pray for something as simple as their food and do it on a daily basis. That's not something that I'm prone to doing. Maybe it's because I've always grown up an American and I've grown up in relative privilege, I guess, I guess you could say, right? I mean, everything is always has a a relation to it, but I've never lived in a war-torn country where I'm wondering where I'm going to find food without a day. I may have missed a lunch because I had a crazy day or something, but I've never really lived in a culture where I I am wondering, how am I going to get food? It's always been around. And yet Jesus, in his encouragement of the prayer life of his followers, says, recognize that your daily needs are something to be putting before God as well. We ought to ask. It's pretty clearly stated in Scripture. Let's talk as a result of these things of what does it look like to actually practice prayer. 
So this is going on to point two under prayer. So there are a variety of ways that one could communicate with God. You, know, you, you could be talking to God about your need for forgiveness. You can, be, um, uh, you can be thanking God for things. You can be praising God for who he is or for his character. You can be praying on behalf of others. You can be praying, uh, you can be praying for your situation. There's a variety of different things about which you could be praying. But what I want to talk a little bit about here, and maybe it's just because I'm selfish, it could be. I'm not really sure why this one specifically. I know part of it, it also has to do with the fact that this is the one that Foster decides to focus on in his book, Celebration of Discipline. But I want to just talk about the prayer for others in a moment, because I think it's probably easy. I probably don't need to teach you a whole lot about how to pray for yourself. That will probably come a little bit more natural to you. But prayer for others um, it is something that's probably worth a little bit of time before we move on from this discipline. So let's talk in point A as prayer as service to others. Prayer as service to others. That praying for others is a means of serving them. Point one, bringing our relationships and our interactions before God helps us see with God's eyes. When you can bring your circumstances before God, it helps you see with God's eyes. Let's look at this for a couple of different examples. Think about it uh, as in point A here, when you pray for your enemies. When you begin to pray for your enemies, those who are persecuting you, you begin to understand how God sees your enemy and how God wants to heal your enemy, right? The first couple of steps, you're probably just going to be praying that God would solve the situation, right? That's just natural. That's what's going to happen. But the more you put that into practice, remember how I told you the more it would start to change you? At least that's been my experience. The more it changes me as I pray for my enemies. And what I start to be able to see is when this person has offended me, I start to, in an effort to talk to God about that situation, I start to see why that person is who that person is. Obviously, if the struggle is my own fault, God can use my prayer life to show me that, right? Brad, you're, that person is persecuting you because you were a jerk and you need to go apologize. Perfect, problem solved. I now just go apologize, that's nice, right? But if it's the other person that's causing the problem and I'm seeing that other person with God's eyes, I start to see, why is it that that other person is acting so selfishly? Why is it that that other person is, is uh, dealing, uh, dealing with this situation or accusing me of doing something that I didn't do? And the more that you start to actually be concerned for their well-being, the less you are concerned with being right in the situation and the more you become concerned with how that person is being uh, sought after by God. You know, Jesus said, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And when I get put in that position, I realize that that person, especially if it's just an acting out of it or just plain mean or fearful or, or whatever, that that's coming out of a heart. And what's happened to that heart? Where has it been broken? Where has it been depressed? Where has it been discouraged? And that's where you slow down and start seeing the things that you're talking about there. 
Absolutely. It, rather than just going, <laughs> understanding that this is flowing out of something. Right, right, right. Yeah, in, in that prayer for other people, you start to seek out where it is uh, or, or the grounds from which that person is reacting the way that they are and seeing how God wants to be at work in that and heal that. Think about, um, and maybe it's just because I've spent some time trying to disciple and counsel men through the years, um, but to try to utilize prayer for dealing with problems of lust, uh, it's, it's actually a really effective situation. We live in a culture that unfortunately seems to really enjoy the objectification of women. It's something that can make a lot of money and it can uh, sell a lot of great things, and it also can attract a lot of attention. And as a result, this is not just a problem that's exclusive to women, but I won't necessarily try to tell you that I've spent a lot of time counseling women on this issue. Instead, uh, trying, to help a, trying to help a guy who's going through life struggling with the objectification of the women in his life, uh, and by trying to, well, just go out there and, and try not to do that. That, that's not a real effective strategy, right? Try to avoid that if you can. But instead, when you, when you start to experience that you, you're realizing under the power of the Spirit that that's not a person that's in front of you, that's an object that's in front of you, that's not, uh, that's not a soul uh, with a story that's in front of you, but that's a, co a collection of parts, some of which are more interesting to you than others, Instead, starting to look at that person as the soul and starting to look at that person as the story and how God sees that person, it becomes a whole lot more difficult to make that person an object because it's a person. It's a person with a story. It's a person whom God loves. And instead of, it, instead of that person, instead of her being an individual that, that, uh, that might just be a summary of things that you might find interesting to look at, Instead, seeing with God's eyes, you start to be able to move beyond the lust that would normally grab a hold of your soul in those moments. Also, we think about it in terms of our prayers for our children. They reveal a lot about where our priority structures need to change, don't they? Right? God, I pray that you would do such and such for my child. And then you realize that that prayer is probably, or in that prayer, you might be worried in a completely different direction of where God might actually be taking your child. We have to prioritize God's priorities for our kids and learn to start to pray in those directions. Uh, one last word in terms of um, uh, probably the most important concept that I won't say that I have learned, I will say that I am learning when it comes to prayer is point B, listening and prayer. I think the reason why I've struggled and, and maintained my rookie status for so long as a prayer is because for a long time I felt like I had to say the right things in the right order in order to try to get God to do something. Only to learn what I shared with you last week, that you can say the right things and say them in the right order using the magic incantation, only to find that you can't manipulate God into doing anything. God is the all-powerful, all-wise being that will do what he sees fit, and he chooses to allow our prayers to be a part of that. The main switch has come from understanding that prayer must follow some form of listening to God. That's what I want to say a couple of points on here before we leave the subject of prayer. 
Point one, one of the main obstacles of prayer that people seem to have are unanswered prayers, right? One of Garth Brooks' most popular songs, since we're going to talk about country music, <laughs> is unanswered prayers, right? Thank God, for unanswered Thank God for unanswered prayers. When you run across your high school girlfriend and realize she's missing a few teeth, or whatever the case may be, right? Thank God for unanswered prayers. And, and the, the, yeah, the theologian... The theologian will listen to that song and go, well, that wasn't an unanswered prayer. That prayer was answered. The answer was no. <laughs> and God blessed the no. <laughs> right? But we... <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, you definitely have to be careful what you pray for. Right? Right? One of the rookie mistakes many people do is they pray for patience. Don't, yeah, don't... Yeah. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Especially while you're driving. That's like the surefire way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a, a couple of things to say about the quote-unquote unanswered prayer. Uh, first thing, and this is not on your sheet, but first thing that you need to clarify is what even an unanswered prayer is. Because sometimes God answers the prayers, and the answers are no. The answers aren't always yes. But there are basically three answers that God will give at, in answers, right? There's the yes answer, there's the no answer, and then there's the one that we probably struggle with more than yes and no. It's the wait, right? Wait. Because that wait can mean all kinds of things. Wait, it's going to be yes later. Or wait, I need to change something in you first. Or wait, I'm not going to give you a yes or a no. We got to work on something else for a while. We don't like wait. But remember, that's an answer as well. However, a couple of things that we also want to say in response to unanswered prayers, quote unquote unanswered prayers. The Bible is clear in point A that there are some times where we hinder our own prayers by our own wrong actions. By our own wrong actions. A couple of quick passages that I just want to remind you of. Uh, could be a little bit of that, but there are some specific things that are even listed in the Scripture that will cause your prayers to be ineffective. Okay, So it's probably worth a little bit of time remembering what those things are. James 4, verse 3. James 4, verse 3. You ask, and you do not receive. You get a no answer. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Right? My kids who are in the room, I will use them as an example. I think that they would love it if I would always say yes to the question, may we have ice cream, right? May we have ice cream? Yes. May we have ice cream? Yes. It doesn't matter if it's 6 o'clock in the morning, if it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon. If they have not eaten anything other than ice cream for the past six years, if the answer was always yes, they might enjoy that, right? <laughs> However, <laughs> so altruistic of you, sons. so altruistic. But the truth is, it doesn't take a highly skilled individual to recognize that that's not effective parenting. 
right? It's, it's not. I need to do what's best for my children, not just always give them what they want. So asking with wrong motives uh, it kind of falls into that category. God, I need a bigger house. God, I need a bigger house. God, and God's going, why? You have a roof over your head. What else could you possibly need a 3,000 square foot house for, right? Or whatever the case may be. That's small. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Hit a little bit close to home. So, little, yeah. Sorry. 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 Says the guy who's figuring out how to live in his suburban, you know, that type of thing. Uh, let, but that's not the only thing, right? So I think that one's easy to say. God's going to say no, that if you've got the wrong reasons for the things that you're asking, but there are some other ones too. I'm sure this is a very popular verse. Um, for men to remember in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, when God is um, instructing through Peter what households are to look like, we come across 1 Peter 3 verse 7, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing them honor to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why? so that your prayers may not be hindered. It is hardcore, but it's such a direct question to be able to ask when I've been talking to men in the past who've been saying, I've been praying this and praying this and praying this, and God just is not answering. He's not responding. It's, it's an easy thing for me to do. Go, how are you treating your wife? And if I call your wife, is her answer going to match your answer? Yeah, go ahead. Christian band called Dogwood, and they had a song that said, if you leave a hurt in the heart of your woman, God will not hear your prayer. And I just love that statement, because that's what it's saying here. If I leave a hurt in the heart of my woman, the heavens probably going to become brass. Yeah, it's, it's pretty direct right there that we can, and these are by far not the only passages, but just some ones that I wanted to try to bring up that seem to be relevant, that the stuff that we do in our day-to-day life can affect the effectiveness of our prayers. So we need to be aware that our own wrong actions can hinder our prayers. But point two here, many times our unanswered prayer is the result of being, let me make sure I don't give you too many words, being out of step with what God is doing. Many times our unanswered prayer is the result of being out of step with what God is doing. And this is really where we come to drive home this concept of listening. Foster says it this way, we must hear, know, and obey the will of God before we pray it into the lives of others. Right, that person with whom you're struggling God, God, I need you to address their pride issue. And God is gently putting his hand on your shoulder saying, why don't we talk about your pride issue first? Right? We've got to hear, know, and obey the will of God before we pray it into the lives of others. But we also need to attempt to understand that God may be moving in the circumstances into which we are praying. And this, friends, I, I want to walk delicately because I'm still, I still feel like I'm kind of more rookie status on this concept, okay? But the, the bottom line is, I think a lot of the times we are quick to jump into a situation that we hear about and immediately start praying that God would do a certain thing, only to find out that God doesn't do that thing. And we're like, what's the deal? 
the deal is sometimes God wanted to do something completely different. And instead of us jumping in and going, how is God at work in here? And how can we support this person and love and encourage this person with prayer? That doesn't necessarily mean that you pray in one specific direction, the direction maybe that they want, right? I mean, we can think about this with some of the things that we've been talking about in the morning time with Jesse. Think about, what's that? Kind of. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a possibility. That's more, I think, kind of... Yeah. Praying with wisdom and discernment. I, I guess the, the point that I want to make is that I, I wonder if we might be better served when somebody comes to us and say, hey, I need you to pray for me about X. I wonder if we might be better served to stop in that moment and go let's find out what's going on with X. And then let's maybe, after we've talked about it and you have now tried to understand from this person, you've cared for your brother and sister by actually listening to their problem instead of just going, yep, I'll pray for you. You know, wrote it on the list. But actually listening to what it is that they're concerned with, then maybe going to God and starting with the, God, what are you doing here? Where would you lead us? How would you have us pray? How would you have us address this issue? What would you have us learn from this? And maybe that will indeed lead in the way that the person is requesting, but maybe it won't, right? I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that praying against someone's illness might be praying against someone's ordained trial by God, right? I mean, that's what we've been talking about now for the last couple of weeks on Sunday mornings. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, that we need to now stop praying for somebody's illness because James in another place directly says, hey, if somebody's sick, have the elders come and pray over them and that will be effective, right? But, but there are times sometimes when we so flippantly bring a need before God before we start to explore how it is that God might be using that situation for a much bigger picture. Yeah. Because I don't want that pain inflicted on the brethren. But his worldview was so opposite mine. And now I guess China has one of the biggest missions. They're going out. They're the ones preaching the gospel yeah. because of their communist government and what they've gone through, the fire they have gone through. They, those people are like afraid of nothing. Because they're like, it's already been done to us, so we can go in and like evangelize the Muslims and the Hindus and areas where nobody else could reach right so i mean persecution persecution has always been an effective tool to spread christianity i mean that's kind of how we got here right and and i would caution us all let's not let our pendulum swing so far the opposite direction where we never recognize that there might be a time in which god is calling us to come in and pray against some something right but Yeah. yeah, they love their, their government, even when they're in the middle of torture, they're mm-hmm. proclaiming Jesus. Yeah. So we've got to explore that a little bit more with, uh, with the way in which we pray. Um, 
I want to go, I want to now switch gears and go over to the discipline of fasting because I have a lot to say there. And uh, we've spent a little bit more time on prayer than I intended to, which is, I guess that sounds horrifyingly theologically bad, but <laughs> spent more time on prayer than we should have. But, but let's, uh, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's talk about fasting. Um, this one, uh, as I told you before, I'm definitely not uh, any, any master of fasting, um, but a lot of the information about fasting, uh, I think is probably easy to organize. The question is going to be, uh, is this something that we can see it, we could see the usefulness of it? And let's take a look at some of this stuff. Uh, for a general definition, starting here in point A, when it comes to the discipline of fasting, we're just talking about abstaining from food, but here's the key point, abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. Uh, I have done series on spiritual disciplines multiple times throughout the years of ministry that I've had the opportunity to do. And interestingly enough, uh, fasting is kind of having a resurgence in the health market currently. Um, it, it now has the new whiz-bang title of intermittent fasting, uh, and it's being used for a variety of, of health-based purposes. I don't discount any of that information, but the point is the fasting that we're going to discuss here is abstaining from food for spiritual purposes, okay? Uh, there are different kinds of fasting in the Bible. For the sake of time, we're not going to look at all of these passages, but there are kind of three different ways in which you could look at fasting. Most of the time, it pops up um, by abstaining from food. However, there were times listed in Scripture in which uh, an absolute fast would happen. This is point two. Food and water um, were completely abstained from, which, let's just be honest, is a little bit more difficult, or a little bit, well, it is a little bit more difficult, and it's also a little bit more dangerous, right? When it comes to the general rules, you can live probably a, a solid three to four weeks without eating food, some of us longer than others, depending upon a variety of factors, um, but you could probably only go about three days or so without water, um, so that's definitely not something to just kind of jump into without fully understanding what's going on. However, there is some biblical precedent for it. And then there's also some very specific, um, specific abstaining that shows up. Like in Daniel, uh, he talks about how he didn't eat specific foods uh, for a period of time in order to be more effective at his job and in order to communicate something to the king. So there, all of that just to show that generally speaking, fasting is an abstention from food, but there's biblical precedent for it to be a little bit more than that as well. The bigger question that I think a lot of people need to ask themselves is why fasting? And so here's where we're going to spend probably the bulk of our time here. Why fasting? Point A, fasting is for, and I'm going to repeat the important point again, fasting is for spiritual purposes not for physical purposes, right? So your doctor may have you fast because you get the joy of having a colonoscopy tomorrow or whatever the case is. That's not what we're talking about here. That may be a quasi-spiritual experience for you, but that's not necessarily what we're, what we're discussing, right? Um, however, it is important to recognize that Christians by far are not the only ones who have fasted. If anything, uh, in world history, there's far more record of people outside of Christianity utilizing fasting for a variety of purposes, not just um, trying to accomplish certain things, but even for self-growth. 
Uh, but Christians took those practices and redeemed them for spiritual purposes as well. Uh, like um, point one here, uh, I lost my place here. Our fasting must be done in effort to connect with God, to connect with God, right? That Zechariah 7, 5 passage, which we won't turn to. God is lamenting to his people saying, hey, you guys are doing a great job fasting. One problem, you're not doing it for me. <laughs> you're doing it for a variety of other reasons. Your fasting has become a religious practice, not actually something that you're using as a tool to connect with me. It's got to be for the spiritual purposes. Foster says this important warning to us. That is the only way that we will be saved from loving the blessing more than the blesser. This is why I'm repeating this important point multiple times over, because in our culture, people are talking about fasting and some benefits to it. And those things, actually, there can be some physically uh, beneficial components to fasting. However, if fasting is to be used as a spiritual discipline, it must be done for the spiritual purposes. So let's, yeah, uh, sure, not, not because of that, right? So what, are, what then are those spiritual purposes or what does that actually look like? This is a point B. Fasting shows us what is really controlling us. Fasting shows us what is really controlling us. Point one. Eating is our society's acceptable vice. Just going to go ahead and throw that out there. There are all kinds of vices, right? People are like, say no to drugs. Drugs are bad. Well, what kinds of drugs, right? I mean, when's the last time that you hit a cup of coffee out of somebody's hand going, drugs are bad for you, right? It's, does, there's no ma major ca campaign against caffeination. Uh, if anything, caffeination or caffeine was espoused by the Roman Catholic Church because it allowed them to stay up all night and pray. Uh, eating is, is one of our society's acceptable vices. But we have, to, we have to recognize how often we're allowing what we eat, how we eat, and when we eat to function kind of more as a mask or something that covers over what we really should be dealing with in our life, right? Um, hear me carefully on this, very carefully, okay? You listening carefully? Because I don't want to be misquoted on this idea. Because I certainly enjoy fellowship time at our church. I enjoy it. I like the brownies. I like the, I, my wife, that's one of her main ways of serving our church by making delectable things. Everybody knows my wife makes some of the best stuff for fellowship time. However, what I notice about myself, I won't point at anybody in this room because I'm sure that none of you do this type of thing. What's easy for me to do at fellowship time is to walk to the food that I want and then to then go to that one friend that I know that I'm always safe to talk to and talk to that friend, right? I would call that a fellowship time fail, right? Because we use, we use the food as a source to be able to attract people in, but we don't make the transition to what it's actually there for, right? For, to, to, help, uh, to help as a tool for us to fellowship with one another. And when I worry more about my own comfort, there's not enough corn dogs, or worry about my friend, my one friend that I'm comfortable to talk to, 
I've missed the point of fellowship time, right? The, the, something that's supposed to draw our church together and allow an, a, a place, an opportunity for interaction with one another. When we, when we start to see that food is kind of grabbing a hold of us, point two here, we realize that abstention from food causes us to see our true reactions. Abstention from food causes us to see our true reactions. I'm not sure if it was Wayne recently or Jesse or both, or this is just a generally true principle, but we learn more who we really are from our reactions than we do from our actions, right? Your actions you can prepare for. Your actions are something that you can think about ahead of time and put it all together. But when something then happens to you, your reaction says far more about your character as it currently stands, right? That tells me exactly where you're at with your relationship with God and others based on your reactions when something happens to you. Go ahead. Uh, I was once telling somebody that there's a reason we call 911 emergency response and not 911 emergency reaction. So if I respond instead of react, I'm doing better. Right, 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 right. Definitely. Responding allows a little bit of of pre-thinking. But the the point that I really want to drive home is that when you apply that concept, our reactions being more of an indicator of our character, think about those moments. And I'm not sure, everybody kind of struggles with this at different levels, but think about those moments where you've gone maybe 12 hours without eating and then something that happens that really tries your patience, right? We have a tendency to get a little, the, the new words for it are hangry. I'm sure you've heard this one before. My favorite one is to go psychoglycemic, right? Have you heard that one before? Psychoglycemic, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The point is, we, we have now almost gotten to the point where we are accustomed and almost excuse the fact, I'm sorry that I reacted so impatiently to that situation. I haven't eaten anything in 12 hours. Right? But what that shows us is that if it, if it requires your blood sugar to be at a certain level for you to respond in a certain way, what's really in control of you? And that's the question that fasting allows you to start to ask before your God. What's really going on inside of you? And it's also important to recognize that fasting, here's point, uh, point three, B3, fasting follows Jesus' example. In John 4, 34, uh, I talked about this passage when I had the opportunity to preach about six weeks ago in church. We get this phenomenal opportunity where John, where, to see Jesus after he has talked to the Samaritan woman. And she walks away and the disciples come back and go, Hey, Jesus, we've got some food. It's lunchtime. And Jesus says, I've got food that you don't even know about. And they all start talking to each other going, Who, who hooked Jesus up with the snacks? Like I thought, <laughs> I thought that we had, I thought we were, we'd agreed we were going to buy this stuff and bring it. And Jesus, knowing their conversation, because he always was that way, says, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. Jesus is pointing to a deeper reality than just how my stomach feels or what my blood sugar is in a certain moment, right? And Jesus even quoted Deuteronomy 8.3 when Satan was tempting him after his 40-day fast, by the way, that's a really long time without food. Jesus tells Satan, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that flows from the the mouth of the Father. 
Foster says it this way that I think is a really fantastic way of encapsulating it. Fasting is feasting. It's just not feasting on food. Right? For Jesus to say that my, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus is pointing to the fact that we can be sustained by the power of God. And that can be far better than having uh, effective blood sugar levels. Okay? Now, within reason, and I'm going to mention that in a little bit again. But we need to recognize that how, how much food has taken control of us in our culture and recognize that that's, it's become an imbalance in terms of our relationships with God. But point C needs to be said as well. The consistent indulgence equals weakness. Consistent indulgence equals weakness. So many things could be said, and I didn't want to sit here and browbeat, so I figured I'd just pick three quote. Three quotes from Richard Foster and leave it there on the table. Point one, there's a popular belief that it is a positive virtue to satisfy every human appetite, right? It's written into our constitution. Everybody has the right to pursue happiness. And now we have a culture in which happiness can be completely relative. Whatever version of happiness you want, that's awesome. And I ought to, I now have a moral obligation to ensure that your, that your happiness is, is a primary virtue. It doesn't matter what their intention was, Nancy. My happiness is all that counts. <laughs> the point is this, right? It, our, my happiness is a, is a primary virtue is what Foster's saying. Two more points in response. Our human cravings, point two, our human cravings, our desire and desires are like rivers and they tend to overflow their banks. Fasting helps keep them in their proper channels. No, remember I told you that fasting was something that was practiced by non-religious people as well, especially in world history. And part of it was because they realized that food had a tendency to control us instead of the other way around us controlling our appetites. Absolutely. And that's why I shared with you that, that like selective abstention. Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of biblical precedent for that. And we could talk more about that. But again, this is not me uh, talking. This is Foster talking in point three. Your stomach has been trained through years of conditioning to give sing signals of hunger at certain hours. In many ways, the stomach is like a spoiled child. And a spoiled child does not need indulgence. It needs discipline. Friends, I have a cat. Please pity me. I have a cat. Okay? I have a cat. And cats, yeah, cats are not smart. They're not. There's, there's nothing that would indicate that cats are wise animals. <laughs> right? Yeah, okay. But here's the thing. My cat always knows when it's time to eat. Why? Because I always feed the cat at the same time. It, it wasn't that my cat's looking at the clock going, hey, it's uh, getting close to my time to eat. Even, even a non-thinking being can experience something within it saying, 
I need my desires to be satisfied, right? It didn't take wisdom to try to figure that out. What differentiates us from a cat, right? The point is, what f the Foster's point, remember, this is not my point. This is Foster's point. The point is, fasting can be a tool that sometimes helps us to try to regain control of these internal impulses. Similarly, and I, I, I want to use your question as kind of a, a jumping off diving board, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. You ask, what if food maybe isn't the problem, maybe something else is. Uh, again, kind of going back to some of my own experience as a counselor for guys that are going through certain things, I have seen fasting be a phenomenal spiritual discipline to be employed for men struggling with addiction to pornography. Because what they were finding is that they were trying to fulfill certain urges in their life and pornography was fulfilling those urges. And instead, what, what God wanted to take them to a new place was, yeah, they want, we needed to talk about a healthy version of sexuality and why that wasn't going to get them what they were looking for, but also to then head in a, a different direction in their relationship with God in which fasting became a tool used by the Spirit to encourage them to start to regain control of their own impulses instead of living life under the control of their impulses. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so fasting becomes a, a great tool in order to be able to do that. So let's talk very practically speaking about the practice of fasting. So we've talked about why fasting. We've seen some biblical precedent. Let's, let's talk about the practice of fasting. Remember, there are specific instructions given by Jesus. Matthew 6, 16. Here's the blank. Avoid the appearance of suffering. We'll look at this passage because a couple of things need to be said about it. Look at Matthew 6. Back to the Sermon on the Mountain here. I think it's in, important to start with the first words of verse 16. And when you fast, notice what is not stated there. And if you fast. Now, I am not going to go so far as I have heard often made before that that then is a hard and fast theological argument that Jesus expects that we will all be fasting. And if you are not fasting, you are failing. No, not so, not so much. However, it's at least somewhat notable that if you are desiring to take the words of Jesus seriously, that at least at this time in which he was stating this, he assumed that his followers would be fasting. I will leave it to you, based on what we're talking about this evening, to put before the Holy Spirit to ask whether or not that's a discipline that he wants to be using in your life as well. However, if you do decide to fast, and when you do fast, we have very specific instructions. Take a look. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, that word for actor, like actors, because they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, let me give you a little Brad translation of the next line here. Take a shower, make sure, make sure you smell nice, and walk around in the best mood you possibly can so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but instead by your Father who is in secret, 
and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The specific instructions are this. If fasting, or for if, it, if fasting is for spiritual purposes, it's between you and God. I'm not saying that it's got to be some CIA-level secret that you can't tell anyone about. But the point is, in Jesus' day, fasting had become the expectation. At minimum, if you were going to be a spiritual person, you were doing two full-day fasts per week. You couldn't be seen as a religious person without those two full-day fasts per week. And they would do it in such a way that everybody knew that they were doing it. Point is, there, there are specific instructions given by our Lord that if you choose to employ fasting, this is something for your relationship with God, not something for when you screw up in the midst of fasting, which you will, that's part of the experience that you go, I'm sorry, I've been fasting because I you know, have a good relationship with God. <laughs> Jesus says, yeah, Jesus says, big warning, that experience of saying that line, that's the reward you'll get from the entire fast, right? That's what the point is there. That's what the point is there. Avoid the appearance of suffering. A couple other practical tips to just kind of throw out here. Slow progression will probably be more beneficial. Slow progression will be more beneficial. Friends, I do not suggest that if you have never fasted before that you leave this, resolve to implement a fast from food and water, and for the next three days, you decide to fast completely from food and water. No, no, no. I don't think that that's something that would be a good idea for you, right? It wouldn't be a good idea for me. I'm not at that point right now. And unless God specifically tells you, hey, this is something I need you to do. And in such a case, you should probably go to other people as part of the body of Christ who also have the Holy Spirit and evaluate that idea with them as well before you start just going Joan of Arc style and walking out the door going, God directly told me to do this thing that's super dangerous. The point is, let's go slowly into this process. Maybe start with fasts of just one meal and then maybe boost it to a, just a daytime fast. Of, of skipping a couple of meals and then maybe a, a, a day and a half to where you don't eat something until, you know, the, the breakfast the next day. And you can work your way up if you see so fit to go to a multi-day fast. But I would encourage you that whatever those, especially as you start going uh, farther or longer uh, in terms of your abstaining, especially from food, that you do so wisely. And you recognize that you're doing it for spiritual purposes and allow him to guide you through that process. One thing that's meant a lot to me over the years is Daniel's no pleasant bread. And what he is doing is he's just taking the, the delicacies out of his, you know, it's probably a vegetable fast or something like that. Yeah. But, and, that's, and that's big in our culture, you know, especially where we're a dessert, we're a snack, we're yeah. a, this kind of a people, just putting it down to the basics, maybe a huge step. It might be a, yeah, that might be a, a good step to, to start at just uh, removing uh, the excess food from your day, you that specific no abstention. Yeah, okay, yeah, that could definitely be a tool as well. But no matter what you do, here's what's important, point C. No matter what you do and what, what part of your journey, let's talk about the experience of fasting first. We need to use the physical experiences as nudges toward God. 
right? If you are experiencing hunger pains, what a blessed opportunity for you to have a little bit of struggle, just a tiny amount of struggle in your life that you can then turn to God and say all kinds of things in terms of, I praise you that I even, uh, that I rarely feel this hunger experience in the rest of my days. Or that that hunger experience might be the reminder that you need to turn to God and actually say anything because you forget all day long, right? You, maybe you're that person that's kind of struggling with this idea of continuously praying, incessantly praying as we talked about, because you get so caught up in your work. Maybe skip food for a little while. And when you feel those little gurgles, oh yeah, my relationship with God. And that gives you a moment to be able to turn to him. Point two, use the time normally spent in meal prep and eating. Use it. If you're, you know, that, that's some great time to be able to redeem for your relationship with God. The meal prep time. I, and I know that maybe this doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. Maybe... Um, you know, maybe you're somebody that always buys fast food and eats it at your desk while you're doing work or whatever the case. I'm not sure what your life looks like. These are, again, these are just suggestions about how fasting can be implemented and useful to you in a practical way. But remember, point D here, remember, this is not a law. Okay, this is not a law. There are going to be some, like point one here, the journey of some God has seen fit because of the way that he has ordained their physical bodies to work. He's seen fit that fasting is not going to be a part of them, right? I do not suggest that fasting become a part of somebody that's struggling with diabetes. It's, it's probably not going to be an effective spiritual discipline to bring yourself regularly near death. You should probably allow, you know, the medical sciences to, to be a tool that God uses to try to manage this situation. But... Point two, in contrast, let your freedom from legislated fasting, fasting is a law, let your freedom from it allow you to experiment with it, however God may choose to use it in your relationship with him. It's a tool that has been used for hundreds of years. Well, it's been used for thousands of years by all kinds of people. It's been used for uh, hundreds of years by Christians. And I encourage you to explore with God if it's something that might help a certain aspect of your relationship with God. Just kind of take the next step. That being said, uh, I'm going to close down our time in prayer, and we will be done. God, there are so many things that could be said about these practices, and we thank you for the opportunity to expose ourselves to these practices, to try to learn more to try to recognize where areas where we are falling short. And we praise you for your grace, recognizing that it is only by that grace that these tools even become effective in our lives. Uh, we want to grow in our relationship with you. We know that you are working in our hearts and that you long for us to be working with you. So please take our efforts, guide our minds, help us to uh, interact with one another about the, these types of uh, ideas uh, that we all might grow together and look closer like you want your church to look. Amen.